I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Polmeps Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with authors of new books in the field. With us today is Wolfram Lacher of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Um, and he's the author of a brand new book, A Libya's Fragmentation, Structure and Process in Violent Conflict, which, which was just published by I.B. Torres. Um, Wolfram, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me and hello, everyone. So let's start by just uh, having you tell us a little bit about the book, uh, its origins and uh, what you think the major contribution of the book will be. Well, the book really started with um, the observation that what has marked uh, Libya's political and military landscape since 2011 is localism, you know, like the emergence of um, armed groups that uh, claim to defend particular communities, uh, politicians who uh, have their support base in particular local constituencies speak in the name of these um, uh, constituencies, um, and an almost complete absence of nationwide political and military uh, organizations or even regional uh, military organizations with the notable exception that uh, then emerged of uh, Khalifa Haftar's power structure uh, in eastern Libya. But even Haftar has faced um, stiff resistance to his attempts to establish authority across uh, across Libya. Um, and so um, what um, I very quickly saw when I um, looked at this phenomenon of, of local forces was that um, we're not really talking about um, you know city states or like um, tribes that are united in their political uh, position, but actually at the local level we have competing. Uh, political factions, competing military factions uh, within these local constituencies. So you're really talking about an extremely fragmented um, political scene. And that, I think, um, has been uh, the main obstacle mm -hmm. to uh, forming stable coalitions at the central government level, both after the fall of the regime in 2011 and um, after the second civil war in 2014, uh, 2015. So the book, um, the objective of the book really is to explain this extreme uh, fragmentation and why nobody, including Haftar, has been able uh, to overcome it. You know, is this just because that's mm -hmm. the way Libyan society um, uh, is? And my answer in a nutshell um, is that it has a lot to do with the way conflict dynamics with the way violence has transformed uh, Libyan society. So the book is, on the one hand, a very granular account of developments in Libya since 2011, but at the same time it advances a, a theoretical perspective yeah. on the conflicts in Libya um, that focuses on the role um, of violence in transforming social relations, and it focuses on um, the role of social ties in which the actors in the conflict are enmeshed. And so it really complicates uh, some of the grand narratives about the war, things that uh, the shorthands that people use for describing who's fighting whom and who's on which side. Yes, absolutely. Um, it complicates the narratives of um, all the three civil wars that we've seen uh, in 2011, since 2011. Uh, in 2011, there was a big assumption that what was happening was a particular communities taking side uh, in the conflict, um, either um, becoming revolutionary uh, strongholds or um, staying loyal to the regime. But actually what happened in 2011 
um, was that um, escalating violence forced uh, communities, forced uh, cities mm -hmm. into uh, particular positions in uh, the conflict. It wasn't so much that there was already um, uh, a local political structure that was taking position, but actually these political structures emerged during the violence, during uh, mm -hmm. the conflict. But it also complicates the narratives about um, the successive uh, civil wars. Well, so let's walk through this and like just take one of your cases or one or two of your cases and explain kind of how this works in practice. So you always hear people say Misrata does this or Misrata does that or Zindan does this. Yes. Um, so what does that actually mean um, when we talk about Misrata doing something and, and especially when we're talking about the level of fragmentation that you see in, described in the book? Yes. Uh, so in each, uh, in each of these cities, be it Zintan, be it Misrata, you have um, multiple competing political and military factions. And actually, um, as I delved deeper into the power struggles that were playing out at the local level in places like Misrata and Zintan, I came to what at first sight might seem like a paradoxical conclusion, which is that Political fragmentation, meaning you know the, the coexistence of competing political factions at the local level, um, is most persistent in places where social cohesion is strong. Hmm. Um, uh, in places that have emerged um, cohesive out of collective struggle, notably in 2011. 2011 was really a formative experience mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, the dynamics of 2011 have shaped uh, Libya's conflicts um, until today. So um, what happens in places like Misrata and like Zintan, which have both emerged very cohesive out of the conflict in 2011, is that you have um, competing political and military factions coexist alongside each other and um, you know, being reluctant to actually openly confront each other mm -hmm. because they are bound um, to each other directly or indirectly through uh, dense networks mm -hmm. of social ties, of you know, family ties, neighborhood ties, ties of mutual obligation um, and solidarity. So in these places where you have high, so high social cohesion, um, you don't have factions that act with utter ruthlessness against their political adversaries. This is what happens in places where social cohesion is weak or has been eroded by the conflicts over, mm -hmm. over the years. Great. So then in the case of, so when you're talking about these high levels of fragmentation um, that uh, characterize almost all levels of the conflict, um, your argument about the way this is essentially endogenous to the violence is very interesting because there there are like fairly obvious like alternative explanations that maybe, as you said, maybe Libyan society is just like this, yes. or there's something about... Uh, anyway, why do you think that the violence is what produces this level of fragmentation? So um, a lot of that, again, goes back to um, a few weeks um, in the beginning of the uprising in 2011 um, that really shapes, shaped the, the landscape until mm -hmm. today. Um, and what happened back then um, was that there was a situation of high uncertainty, right? Bin Ali and Mubarak had just fallen mm -hmm. in, in Tunisia and Egypt. And suddenly um, the possibility of revolution in Libya also, also appeared. 
Now, um, this was a situation where you had um, small protests in places across Libya, uh, but in some places, regime forces used violence mm -hmm. um, and thereby uh, provoked protests, uh, caused protests to spiral, right? They triggered outrage with, uh, with their killings. And in several places, you then had funeral processions that mm -hmm. uh, turned into much larger protests and that um, caused people to attack uh, regime, uh, regime forces. Um, another thing that happened in these first few days and weeks was that um, the regime started dealing with anyone from who was from a place where the uprising was uh, uh, was spreading with suspicion, like looking at them mm -hmm. um, as a potential rebel. Um, and for example, uh, within days of the first protests in Zintan, the regime began uh, disarming soldiers from Zintan in its forces and began withdrawing them from um, guard duty at arms depots, thereby pushing these soldiers mm -hmm. who'd been probably loyal until that point, pushing them uh, to defect, to join the rebellion uh, in Zintan. Um, the regime also began recruiting uh, volunteers in communities that it considered as particularly loyal, mm -hmm. tribal communities, thereby um, you know, causing everyone in uh, place in their in their you know places that were neighboring these communities and where the uprising right. was spreading, spreading, causing everyone there to look at their neighbors um, as potential enemies and as a threat, as a collective threat. Um, so, um, what these um, threats of violence in the first few days and weeks of the uprising did was, at least in Western Libya to um, split uh, the scene into places that were considered as revolutionary strongholds and others that were considered as loyalists, even though there was actually a very small minority in these places mm -hmm. who were committed to either position. It is fascinating. I was, uh, the, the section you have on uh, Beni Walid in this time period is really interesting, like the very micro dynamics of it, that they didn't use violence, and that uh, certain kinds of protests happened or didn't happen. It all seems highly contingent, like it, everything could have happened differently. Yes, um, and I think um, contingency, contingency is um, something that becomes very important in a context of high uncertainty, in a context, of, um, in co in a context where no one um, really knows what to do because suddenly um, all sorts of yeah. possibilities are open, right? Um, and, um, you don't know, should you now join the uprising and then risk being killed or imprisoned mm -hmm. if it fails? Should you um, not join the uprising and then risk losing your political future or your social future if the uprising succeeds? And this is a situation where actually individual uh, decisions become very important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you had um, the commander of uh, Toprak military region in the far east of the country who in the first four days of the uprising, decided to refuse orders, decided to um, prevent the regime from sending in reinforcements. Um, and this decision by this one man who had fallen out mm -hmm. with Gaddafi a few years earlier um, had a huge impact on the, on the success prospects of the uprising in eastern Libya.
That's, that's really interesting. Why don't we take a step back? Let's talk about the research for this book, because one of the things which is just really striking is that you were actually able to spend a great deal of time on the ground doing this research, which is not something many Western uh, researchers have been able to do. So tell us more about the research you actually did that goes into this book. Yeah, so um, you know, doing research in Libya became increasingly difficult um, uh, as you know, over the years. Mm -hmm. um, I'd gone to Libya several times uh, under Gaddafi before 2011, but then I only started going um, several times per year from 2011 onwards. And this was a time, 2011 to 2013, was a time when quite a lot of um, Western journalists and researchers were on the ground or were going regularly on the ground. And it was actually very... Um, easy to work um, at that time. During that time, mm -hmm. uh, people were, you know, after a long time of isolation, were very happy to talk to foreigners. Um, obviously, the, you know, the, it was a challenge to cut through certain narratives that were dominant at the mm -hmm. time, revolutionary narratives. But still, it was a it was a period where you could um, establish a lot of contacts. Um, that then proved useful in the years afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, but from 2014 onwards, from the escalation into um, the Second World War, a uh, Second <laughs> Civil yeah. War onwards, um, things became uh, much more difficult, and very few uh, Western researchers continued going mm -hmm. um, to Libya, which um, obviously also further complicated things because. When you show up in a place that is well in a in a very uh, precarious security situation, and you say, "Well, I'm a researcher," and and people don't see a lot of researchers, well, they say, "Well, really, you're a researcher? Um, you're probably a spy, right?" And and so mm -hmm. people became increasingly suspicious. The um, perception that uh, these conflicts were being driven from outside was mm -hmm. increasingly per pervasive. Um, and um, and so yes, it became increasingly difficult. And the um, and also I have to say that um, the uh, geographical space that I was able to operate in uh, narrowed. Right, the last time I was in eastern Libya was in 2015, um, and the last time I tried going there was in 2017. And since then, um, I you know I wouldn't be able to go anymore. Right. Uh, um, so. Obviously, that has also shaped my perspective mm -hmm. to, some, to some extent. Yeah. So well, let's talk about uh, Eastern Libya then. So one of the great grand narratives of the war, as, as you mentioned earlier, is the emergence of Haftar and, uh, and, and his attempt to try and become the unifying force to retake the country, as it were. Um, and, and you throw quite a bit of uh, skeptical uh, cold water on this idea. So explain exactly how do you understand the Haftar phenomenon? How does it fit with the overall argument of the book? Yeah. What are people getting wrong? Yeah. Well, so um, obviously the main reason why Haftar has been able to expand and why he has been able to um, also gradually consolidate uh, authority over what was initially a very loose alliance of, of forces that he started out with the main reason behind that is that he has enjoyed uh, foreign support that is far uh, disproportionate to anything that any other actor in Libya's conflicts has um, has enjoyed. Um, 
so this is um, obviously, I mean, you know, it's quite quite an obvious and, and straightforward right. uh, explanation. But he has expanded, um, first of all, in areas, in regions where, I argue, social cohesion is weak and where you don't have these um, socially embedded forces that emerged out of the, the 2011 war, um, namely in uh, eastern Libya and to some extent in, in southern Libya, where he's expanded over the last uh, two years mm -hmm. or so. Um, he faces stubborn resistance in places where uh, social cohesion is strong and where uh, socially embedded forces uh, oppose his advances, including in places like Zentan, where you have a pro-Haftar faction, but you also have uh, an anti-Haftar faction, and the two coexist in Zintan. Neither is able to mm. take over um, because of the, um, you know, because of the cohesion of this community. I thought it was interesting your description of how uh, quickly, surprisingly quickly, and easily he moved into the south. Um, yes, uh, I mean Haftar moved into the south mainly uh, by, you know, flipping certain local armed groups um, in the south. Mm -hmm. Um, making them promises of money or making payments, um, which is also a way that he, you know, previously used in expanding, for example, in the in the oil crescent in in eastern Libya. Um, he's not really established authority in southern Libya, mm -hmm. contrary to what he's done in in eastern Libya. In eastern Libya, he's really established control through uh, repression, through violence. Um, obviously, he also has. Uh, a support base in eastern Libya and elsewhere, but um, he's been able to ex establish this support base primarily because he enjoys mm -hmm. so much foreign support. Um, so what we have in southern Libya right now is essentially the same armed groups um, that are present there, that were present there before Haftar okay. expanded, um, that have uh, in many cases simply announced their loyalty uh, to Haftar, but what would happen if Haftar suffered su setbacks in Tripoli? Um, you know, in that case, we could probably expect some of these forces to switch sides again. And then on the flip side of it, uh, you'll often hear supporters of Haftar or supporters of of the you know of, of the other side um, describing his opponents as primarily Islamist, Muslim Brotherhood. Um, you know, and they'll talk about the external support that they receive from Qatar and Turkey. Mm. So how would you then read that side of the equation? So I see that I see the forces um, that are fighting against Haftar in Tripoli as primarily forces that draw their strength from um, their embeddedness in particular communities. And this is primarily the case for forces from Misrata, for forces um, from uh, the Amazigh towns, uh, to some extent from Zawiya. Um, there are also, um, in these in these cities and in Tripoli, there are also other types of armed groups, armed groups that are, you know, closer to uh, predatory organizations, um, you know, warlord enterprises, criminal gangs. Mm -hmm. um, they are also uh, fighting against Haftar, but the strength um, of the anti-Haftar alliance really comes from these socially embedded forces. And um, foreign support has become increasingly important for the anti-Haftar alliance, but um, for a long time, you know, since the um, war erupted in April of last year, um, until 
December, the foreign support that this anti-Haft alliance got from Turkey was actually very limited. They got a few drones, which mm -hmm. were important, but they were gradually taken out by the other side. And then Turkey actually withdrew support for several months in order to force the government in Tripoli into signing an agreement on uh, you know, maritime rights. Um, so what allowed this alliance to survive until December, when it got more substantial Turkish support, was really um, the cohesion, mm -hmm. um, uh, the internal cohesion of these forces. So, you know, if you take a step back then and start looking looking ahead, um, given the uh, the degree of fragmentation and the nature of the violence, which has had all of these pervasive effects that you've described, is there any way to put Libya back together again? Is there anything that your book might suggest um, when you can't go back and create social cohesion that doesn't exist? Um, what could, what can Hassan Salameh or the people trying to make this country work, what could they do which would actually overcome some of these problems? So, um, you know, as I said, the, the, biggest, obvious, uh, the, the biggest obstacle previously um, was this high degree of uh, fragmentation that prevented the establishment of a stable alliance at the central government level. Right now, of course, um, the problem is quite different, right? Right now, the main obstacle to uh, a political settlement is the fact that we have one dominant actor who wants to take control, who wants to uh, you know, take power as a whole. And it's very, um, it's impossible to reach a deal with him uh, that would fall short of handing him uh, total power. Um, the other big obstacle now is that we have foreign intervention on both sides of uh, the conflict, uh, which means that, um, you know, I mean, uh, for example, the presence of Turkish and Syrian uh, forces uh, on the side of the anti-Haftar alliance right now uh, makes it very difficult to come to an agreement um, that would be acceptable to Haftar and to his foreign backers, uh, the UAE. Um, so the biggest obstacles right now, um, I think, are at the international level, um, at, uh, you know, in, in the fact that we have um, foreign backers on both sides and we have a complete disinterest or, you know, big disinterest among Western powers in this conflict. So if you look back at um, this, the earlier periods of the war, the, where, where you start your story, 2011 to 2013, was there anything which could have been done differently, which might have stopped uh, these processes from taking hold? Yes, um, I think uh, there are a few things that could have been could have done differently. The sta standard answer to this question is that um, the powers that supported the overthrow of Gaddafi, uh, NATO um, and uh, certain Gulf states, that they should have done more um, to shepherd the political transition, the post-Gaddafi transition. Um, I'm, I'm not really convinced uh, by this line of argument because what was important really in, uh, in 2011 was uh, for this transition to have domestic legitimacy, which would have been uh, very difficult to generate with a, you know, with a more hands-on uh, international presence. Um, but what could have been done differently probably at the time um, was um, the decision by the National Transitional Council at the time to start paying out uh, money and salaries uh, to the armed groups, which, re which really led to uh, the, you know, the, the mushrooming 
um, of armed groups to um, to the establishment of militia empires, militia conglomerates that then led to escalating power struggles within uh, the revolutionary uh, coalition. I think that this was um, probably the single most problematic decision that was taken at the time. That's interesting. So um, I guess... Uh yeah, so anyway, uh, so we've been speaking with uh, Wolfram Locker, uh, author of the new book, uh, Libya's Fragmentation, Structure and Process in Violent Conflict. Um, Wolfram, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.